Welcome to the On the Verge of podcast, where we explore the world of politics and policy and focus on how tech companies can navigate the politics of disruption. Hello, and welcome back to the On the Verge of podcast. I'm Caitlin Murray, and I'm joined by Scott Gerber, partner and founder of Verge Strategies. We are back with our sixth episode, this time with Alexis Podesta and Gil Duran, who've worked side by side with incredible leaders like Senator Dianne Feinstein and Governor Jerry Brown. Scott, tell us a little more about your conversation. Thanks, Caitlin. Well, I had the opportunity uh, to s- sit down and chat with Alexis Podesta and Gil Duran. Uh, we're three of the four members of the Jerry and Diane Club. Um, basically, we had the chance to work for Jerry Brown and Diane Feinstein all at different times. Uh, so it was great to catch up, and we got to talk uh, about the waterfront of California and national politics, everything from Gavin Newsom and its recent gambits uh, to to push him up, himself out on the national stage, to um, the race to succeed Senator Feinstein in California, to which um, candidates we think will come through the Republican uh, primary. So it was a fascinating conversation. Uh, Gil and Alexis are uh, two of the smartest people around when it comes to California politics, and I really enjoyed it. Great. Without further ado, let's jump in. Too many people in this world who've worked for the two giants of modern California politics over the past half century. As far as I know, this is a club with only four members. We've got Alexis Podesta, who was Senator Feinstein's scheduler and rose to become Secretary of Housing and Business under Governor Brown and Governor Newsom. Alexis is now in the private sector where she runs the strategic advisory firm, the Podesta Company. We've got Gil Duran, who worked for Jerry both when he was mayor of Oakland and during his second, second stint as governor. He later went on to be the opinion editor at the Sacramento Bee, the Bee newspapers, and later the editorial editor at the San Francisco Examiner. There's me, who ran comms for both Jerry and Diane. And there's the late, great Percy Pinckney, who worked for Jerry during his first stint as governor and then later supported Diane in the LA office and was her liaison to the black community. So let's pour one out for Percy and let's call the meeting of the Diane and Jerry Club to order, and we can unpack the latest with California politics for our loyal band of podcast listeners. So let's start with Gavin Newsom. Gavin may be the most intriguing California politician at the moment. He's clearly playing politics at a high level, engaging on the national conversation, going on Hannity, supporting President Biden, launching an effort for a constitutional amendment on guns, and shoring up weaknesses at home. So Alexis, who worked for Team Newsom, what do you think the governor is trying to do with all these political well, machinations? It's good to be here today, Scott and Gil. May Percy rest in peace. Um, I, you know, I think the governor is governing. If you like, I mean, Gil knows his history better than I do. But I mean, the governor has always had a, a big, bold agenda. Um, I, you know, I don't think he's ever been shy about that. I think his first term was a lot of barriers to actually governing. Um, You had a pandemic, you had a recall, 
we had a number of natural disasters here in California. Um, and I think so far the second term has really been a great entree for him to make some news and make a splash. I, I'm actually really curious to hear what Gil has to say. What do you got, Gil? I think he's doing as much as you can do to try to raise uh, your profile when you're in the position that he's in. Obviously, there's not an open lane for a run for president. If there was, I think there'd be no doubt he would be running. You know, he's doing all the things you do when you're trying to be seen as a presidential candidate. Uh, but of course, uh, once again, as with his path to the governor's office, there is an elderly politician in his way, uh, you know, very similar in stature to what Jerry was, someone who's been around a long time, straight talking, old guy with a lot of respect, and, and he's going to have to wait his turn. But I do think what Newsom has rightly sensed is that there is a real lack of visible democratic leaders communicating strongly on these issues, taking on the right wing and the authoritarian wannabes, playing them at their own game. And so while I have a lot of criticisms of Newsom, I also have respect and appreciation for what he's trying to do to fill a void. The Democratic bench is shockingly thin, and the Republicans seem to be kind of mass-producing Ron DeSantis types who can go out there and hit the ball at every level. And uh, the Democrats just have not been able to do that. And so I think, uh, you know, this is him planning ahead, putting himself in people's minds for the future. But we also have a very old president. Uh, as we all know, life is precious. Every moment is not guaranteed. And so if something were to happen to open up that lane, I think there's no question the first person to announce from the Democratic side would be Gavin Newsom. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Gil. And I think what he's doing is smart. Uh, he is showing a brand of muscular Democratic leadership that is lacking. It's lacking uh, I happen to think Biden is doing a really great job policy-wise as president, but politically, um, uh, it leaves something to be desired for a uh, for a base that wants to see their leaders fight uh, fight Trump, fight DeSantis, fight um, the Republican uh, uh, Congress. So, uh, going on to Hannity, um, I was skeptical, um, and he really delivered a political masterclass on how to do that, um, marshalling facts and arguments and really winning that conversation. So I agree, he's setting himself up for a run in 28. And then if something happens in 20, Do you think the hand, sorry, can I ask go. a question? Because <laughs> right, I feel like you both would have a good answer yeah, to this. Sure. Do you think that the Hannity followers thought that was a good interview? I... I would doubt they would. I think that the uh, Hannity followers are trained to see as Hannity as the victor no matter what. I don't think they're capable of this. Is not a base that their thoughts are not based in reality, fact, or rationality, right? But I think, and, and I generally encourage people not to go on Fox News because there's not much to be gained there. But I think in the case of Newsom, there was because A, he showed he's a lot smarter than Hannity. Hannity's not smart. He's just used to having guests on he can bully or who are ready to lick his boots and make him look smart. And, you know, if you've ever watched some of these interviews on Hannity, they just go along with whatever he says and amplify it and nod their heads. So he was able to show that actually Hannity's pretty paper thin when it comes to depth on policy, etc. But also it wasn't about winning over Hannity voters. It was about getting in all the newspaper stories and all the viral Twitter stuff that appeals to Democrats and shows Newsom essentially owning Hannity. So in that way, I thought it was brilliant and an exception to the rule of never go on Fox unless you're going to, 
hand them their own asses uh, on viral social media and show that you can do something that uh, other politicians whose names I won't name would never be able to do for an hour and change. So, Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly his base is the media and clearly all of the media watched. So it raised his stature in the shadow race for 2028, uh, but also really positioning himself for the uh, attention and money that comes with the modern social media environment. So win, win, win. Um, all right, well, why don't we switch gears a little bit uh, to our old boss, uh, Diane Feinstein. We know that she's not running again and people are lining up to run for her seat. We've got a trio of members of Congress, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, as well as an unknown Silicon Valley political neophyte, um, Lexi Reese. Uh, now, it seems to me that the House Republicans gave Adam Schiff a big wet kiss when they censured him um, and opened the door to $8 million in Senate campaign contribution. Uh, as we look to the Senate race in California, Gil, how, how would you handicap the race? I think that uh, right now it's definitely a competition uh, where Schiff is in the lead, uh, uh, fin- you know, financially, and he's got some advantages because of the right wing's obsession with him. But I think he's pretty much neck and neck with Katie Porter, and I think the race is most likely to come down to those two uh, because they do they have amassed a big following. They're very visible. All the stuff you try to do when you're running statewide, which I know very well from my time with uh, Jerry when he was mayor running for AG, they're just out there. Voters know them, not only voters in California, but voters in other states who want to see them continue and be bigger and be more important. So I think it's going to be really hard to get past those two in the race. There are other candidates, at least one other candidate in the race who's formidable and respectable, but I just think that um, you know, Barbara Lee doesn't really solve the question that we've, the debate we've been having about whether we should have uh, octogenarians in office. A lot of the focus has been on people shouldn't be really old in these offices. And so we'd be right back in that situation in a few years there. So I really think it's going to come down to Schiff and uh, Porter and the right wing is doing a lot of um, heavy lifting for Schiff right now and really uh, serving as a, a fundraiser. For yeah, him. I do agree. Well, I'm excited that we have at least three good candidates. Um, and, you know, there might be a real campaign for this seat. I think that's really important for the voters of California to choose their next senator. So, I, yeah, I think this is great. I think it will be neck and neck. And I'm sure Katie Porter will have her time to shine as well, thanks to the Republicans at some point between now and next November. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's somewhat surprising to me that the Republicans decided to really lift up Schiff. Um, you know, if they wanted to, uh, they really wanted to hurt him, they wouldn't talk about him at all. Um, but, uh, you know, $8 million, a lot of money. Uh, Schiff has institutional support and has the support of uh, one congresswoman from uh, San Francisco named Nancy Pelosi. Her support is not to be underestimated. That's uh, huge. She, yeah. well, she her knows California better than anyone. So yeah. I'd say enormous. So to me, uh, Schiff, uh, Schiff is in the lead right now and Porter and Lee, who are both strong candidates, have work to do to catch up. As for Lexi Reese, I would say never underestimate the ability of consultants to find a new revenue stream, however ridiculous. Hey, you got money, you can uh, uh, you can run, and um, yeah. yeah, we've seen that very famously in California. Um, Tom Steyer ran for, for president. 
and made made a lot of consultants, a lot of money. For the record, I had nothing to do with that, just for the record. For the record. All right. Let's talk about Diane for a moment. Uh, we'll leave the conversation of whether she should step down to others. Let's get to the more practical. Does anything? Does anyone here think that she will step down before the end? I don't think she will. Alexa. She seems pretty committed to the job, to being there. I think she's in it. Yep. Yeah, I think it's a case of till death do us part. I think she takes her responsibility very seriously. She is married to the job, as we all know. And as long as she can continue to carry out her functions, uh, then she will do that. Uh, and I don't see her stepping down uh, anytime soon. I think it's become a very excited um, fever dream of someone on the far left that Biden and Feinstein are somehow going to step down and it's going to be this magical moment where all the far left progressives now take power, but um, not putting a lot of faith in that scenario. And I think we, you know, if she was going to do it, she would have done it by now because she's went, she's gone through a lot, uh, a lot of public uh, pressure, uh, humiliation to some degree. And so if she hasn't done it by now, I don't see it happening, uh, barring a, a physical inability to, to carry on. As she used to say, you get six years for a reason and she's not done with her six years yet. No, she clearly feels like she has more work to do in the United States Senate for the people of California. And by God, she's going to do it. And uh, woe to anyone who stands in her way. And by the way, if she wanted to run again, she'd still uh, be a really competitive senator. Maybe that. Maybe that's just a bit too far. But but uh, she'd probably uh, be better than like ninety percent of Congress. I also think that like the far left yeah, doesn't sure. realize that they right. actually still need her. I mean, well, they have. To they absolutely do. I mean, she's a she's a uh, steady vote for uh, Democrats in the Senate. She's a steady vote for uh, passing judges through the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, and she will continue to um, to weigh in on the causes that matter most to her: gun control, um, abortion, freedom, abortion rights, and uh, she'll be a tremendous senator till her last day in office. Well, the judges thing really kind of seemed to squelch the whole resign thing because now you're in a real serious issue where you're doing actual damage and um i think it, it that you know maybe next time do the do the math first and then then launch the strategy yeah hard principle to, to the digest but... where she explains the role of the senate but yeah yeah there you go all right on the uh looking to presidential politics uh joe biden who um who is our president is running uh, I think it's fair to say that there's lukewarm enthusiasm for him, not among this call, but among uh, the base of the Democratic Party. He's now branding his accomplishments over the first two years as Bidenomics, as a way of framing the conversation. Uh, so, Gil, um, you are the master of uh, framing. Um, how do you think this frame works? Do you think it's compelling? Do you think it um, centers the conversation in a, in a helpful, helpful place for Joe Biden? I think Bidenomics is a little wonky, uh, hopefully, and I think they're doing this to some degree. They need to show the real effect it's having on people in terms of their quality of life, their wages, their ability to plan for a better future. It's a bit abstract. It's more of a media beltway term, right, Bidenomics. But under that, you can have the all of the content and messaging and focus on the so-called kitchen table issues that people talk about at night, worried about things like inflation, the pandemic we just went through. Um, I think it's a, a code word right now, but they're going to have to find ways to distill 
that which is Bidenomics into very tangible uh, messages that connect to vote, you know, working class voters. I'm assuming this is what it's usually about. Um, so yeah, I think Bidenomics is a bit of a high level code word, but I think we're going to see the devil will be in the details, and we're going to see a an incisive focus on the ways that life under a democratic administration tends to traditionally have a better economic result, uh, uh, an impact on the lives of working Americans. What do you yeah, think? I mean, I am a huge Joe Biden fan, um, goes back to our days in the Senate. Uh, I think he's done an incredible job. I don't think Biden nomics gets anyone like the phrase gets anyone really all that excited. Um, I think you've got younger and younger voters who don't even know that Ronald Reagan was our president on the Reaganomics, which is probably the spin. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think he's speaking to the voting population that he needs to be speaking to at this moment, which is the, the younger voters who are the least excited about Joe Biden. Um, but, you know, it's a start and we'll see what they do over the next, what, 18 months. Yeah. Well, I think there's a gap. There's a gap between the political accomplishments that he's made and economic accomplishments. We've got record low unemployment, record low black unemployment, record low Hispanic unemployment, um, and the way people are feeling. And I think they're making a big bet that by the time that we get to uh, six months before the election, that people will start feeling about better about the economy. And I think they are making the bet that if they don't argue for the economic success, that no one else will. Um, I think people will feel that he's done well on the culture issues, brought normalcy back to the White House. And the question is, will people believe that he has been a steady hand on the economy? Um, so I think the jury is out. Uh, but I understand why they're making this bet. And, you know, whether I love the phrase Bidenomics or not, I think um, smart to center on jobs, smart to center on the economy. And I couldn't agree more, Gil, that you have to make it real, um, but you got to start somewhere. And I think. Uh, yeah, good it's early start. yet. Yeah. That's a headline, right? Top line, Bidenomics. Under that comes all of the details. And I think connecting it back to democratic or, or American identity to some degree. They started off with talking about freedom, right? Freedom, which is under attack right now in places like Florida. Um, it's a theme Newsom's been hammering that the Republicans are always hammering. Uh, and I think that they've got, it's got to be one of many arguments that are being made under under one flag, under one campaign. And I would say I, I like the job Biden is doing. Um, I think a big part of that is just not having to worry every day that the president is... Uh, doing insane things and, and threatening to take the country off the edge. I, I, though my only hesitance is that he is, uh, like a lot of people, he is so old. Um, you worry about the, his health holding up. Um, he's had a few stumbles, literal stumbles, uh, as well as verbal ones. And it's just, so I think, a, a sense of um, uh, anxiety about, you know, what comes next and whether, um, you know, he, he can hold up to the attacks on age that have become so normal. That was one of my fears with all the attacks on Feinstein is this is just a trial run for what they're going to do to Biden next. And so you got to be careful when you argue that elderly people should not be in office. Um, I think, you know, the, the last occupant of the Oval Office wasn't, didn't seem very uh, neurologically cogent at times as well. So 
um, you know, it's this has become a, a, a normal attack. I mean, I remember back in 2011, the Republicans in Sacramento were using it to attack Jerry, saying they thought he had dementia. So this is not a new thing, but it's become more normalized and more weaponized and has become a bigger issue than it uh, than it has been in the past. But at the same time, the bases of both parties don't seem too interesting in the interested in the young whippersnappers who are trying to position themselves as the future. So. They don't. And the reality is that Biden doesn't have to um, create a lot of enthusiasm um, that if the person, uh, Donald Trump, and we'll get into that further down the, uh, the conversation, uh, wins the GOP nomination, he will do all the heavy lifting that Joe Biden needs to turn out uh, Democratic voters, young people, uh, moderates and independents, and even some uh, some um, sane uh, center-right voters. So I think they're they're making that bet too. If if somebody else comes out of it, um, you know that really changes the equation. But I think right now Trump continues to dominate the primary, and so if you can establish that Biden's been good on the economy, he's brought a level of sanity to the White House, and uh, Donald Trump will turn out Democrats. Uh, that's his formula for for success. All right, let's turn to Kamala. Uh, Gail, your thoughts are well known here, so uh, we won't start with you. Um, I'll go on mute now. There you go. Uh, Alexis, um, you know, uh, give us your sense of how you think she's doing as vice president. It's really, uh, given uh, Biden's age, given the questions about his ability to do the job, the role of vice president becomes even more important. Um, how do you think she's doing um, in filling the shoes? Um, clearly, there have been a lot of stories about how her offices worked. Um, but, you know, how do you think she's standing up to the, and the truth is that I don't actually know. They're doing a very good job of keeping all of that sort of under wraps. I think, you know, you had those early stories of staff leaving due to hostile work conditions. You know, she's voting a lot. She's breaking a lot of ties. Um, I think she's almost at the record. Uh, she's making a few appearances, but I, you know, I haven't seen her do anything super meaningful from a policy perspective in quite some time. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, she's sort of refocused on, um, the fighting for reproductive freedoms, um, which is smart. Um, she's fighting, uh, for common sense gun. Uh, control measures, which as a former prosecutor is smart. Um, I think she has been a little bit under the radar in Washington and Sacramento, um, but she's out in the States making the case um, uh, to the Democratic base, which is also smart. So I think they were off to a rocky, uh, a rocky start at the beginning of the term. It seems like they've righted the ship, even though there's not a whole lot of affection uh, among the the electorate um, for her, but she just needs to, you know, show um, really sort of uh, uh, the ability to do the job, which I think she's been doing, especially breaking all the ties. Um, Gil, we'll give it to you for a second. Well, I would agree that she seems to have settled into a bit of a groove here out on the campaign trail, talking about reproductive rights um, and being really a strong voice on that. Uh, an uncompromising voice on that. And it's been a while, maybe six months or so, since the last round of stories about the staff stuff. So hopefully that's something that gets under control and allows her to focus on being out there as a surrogate 
for the president. I think that gives you a very specific thing to do when you're back in a in campaign mode is to be the president's surrogate, very clearly defined job. Another thing I would notice is that uh, they often the White House refers to it as the Biden Harris administration. So that's that's a pretty good bump there, I think. And uh, she can stay on a trajectory of, of projecting strength and uh, clear communication and avoid further stories about strife in, in the office, distracting strife. All, all offices are full of strife, as we know, but there's this distracting public nature of the strife that becomes a real impediment. Then I think that, uh, you know, the, the narrative might shift a little bit. I, I still think that people like Newsom are uh, have an advantage in terms of being out there on the attack. Newsom doesn't have a boss, doesn't have to serve someone else. You know, he's kind of being a surrogate for Biden, but slightly throwing little elbows here and there to kind of show that he's, you know, he can he has more agency to do as he pleases. And so that puts her at a disadvantage. And I think that we can see from polls, voters don't necessarily view her as the heir apparent, but there's time and we don't know what's going to happen down the road. And so I, I will say that in the past few months, there seems to be a little, a slight uh, change in strategy that seems to be working for her, at least to keep uh, bad stories out of the real press. Now, the far right press, of course, she's a daily fodder for everything she says or anytime she laughs becomes an attack. Um, but that's just to be expected uh, these these days. So yeah. yep. my, well, my assessment at this time. Let's uh, let's turn to the Republican primary, which is really where all the action is. Right. Uh, you've got uh, Donald Trump. Uh, who's who's uh, leading by at least 20 points, probably more like 25. You've got Ron DeSantis, and there's now a, a second look at him, and people, uh, including the Wall Street Journal, saying his campaign is stalled, even some of his own campaign uh, officials. You've got Chris Crispy. Chris Crispy. Chris Christie, uh, uh, who I, I have a deep affection for as the only person who's running right at Donald Trump. And then you've got a number of other um, candidates, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, um, who Don't are forget Mike in, Pence. in case something happens. Um, and Mike Pence, former vice president, um, man of courage who stood up for a republic. Uh, so how do you look at this, Gil? Um, who do you think is going to come out of the GOP primary and be uh, the nominee for the republic? Well, I think the, the key thing to understand is the is the Republican Party is no longer a political party. It's basically a cult, a cult of one man named Donald Trump. And it seems like the further, the deeper he gets into trouble, crime and treason or whatever the hell he's up to uh, with all these hoarded documents, the more they love him. I think if he were campaigning from behind the bars of a federal prison, his numbers on the in terms of the Republican base would shoot through the roof. So I think it's going to be really hard for any Republican to beat him. Uh, I think, you know, DeSantis tried by running alongside and not being with him. That's not going to work. I think you're right. Christie going at least directly at him is trying to speak to Republicans who might still have some flicker of sanity somewhere toward the, the base of their brain that we shouldn't be going along with this. This is a, a, a doom trip. But, um, you know, and, and it's been interesting to watch DeSantis experiment with being as extreme as possible, banning books. Uh, trying to be the most extreme anti-choice candidate out there, going directly at LGBTQ people, didn't work. Just just uh, stoking all the hatreds doesn't work because you are not the leader. You are not the leader of the cult. You are, in fact, a traitor uh, to the leader. And so, but I really think the thing that doomed DeSantis, hear me out on this, was his laugh. I mean, did you see like that big donkey guffaw he has. It's really, after all the framing they did on Kamala to make fun of her laugh, 
I found it very poetic that he got really trapped. Uh, you know, it seems like on the right, DeSantis's laugh and on the left became a huge, like who laughs like that, right? And um, but it's amazing if you're laughing and you catch you freeze frame, like it, everyone looks stupid. But I, I thought uh, watching the end of his campaign, the emphasis on his bizarre laugh um, was really just kind of a full circle moment of justice. So I think it's Trump, uh, Trump till the end, Trump until the Kool-Aid comes out, uh, Trump over all. Alexis, for the Republicans. I, for the Republicans. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I adore my uh, colleague from the Bay Area, but I don't think the race is over just yet. Do you think DeSantis or somebody else could come out of the field to uh, uh, to really... Um, I don't know. I do think that there could be sort of this, like, independent effect, right? Like, the, the non-Trump candidates could dilute the vote and they just lose sorely all the way around um the trump thing is so weird it's so weird that like this man who is so gross on like every level his character is just repulsive and people love him um and i i don't it's something that I don't understand. And so I'm having a hard time. And, and quite honestly, I thought that like Donald Trump in the race against Hillary Clinton was the best thing that could have happened to Democrats. Um, and so I've now learned to not underestimate him. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting. I, I do think that there are less Trump supporters than there were. So some are peeling off, um, but who they opt to vote for or support, I think is still sort of unclear, maybe even to them. Um, and I just, I don't know, like, I just, I find it to be such a bizarre experiment in America that we are idolizing a celebrity who has really done not a whole lot of good. Um, and, and and I also think that like if the best America has after all we've been through is another Biden Trump ticket, like we sort of deserve everything that we get. Wow. I, I will I will. I mean, the thing Trump did right is he he got Roe overturned, right? He did all these horrible things the Republicans have wanted. He has no regard for rules or fairness. They packed the court. Now they're just enacting their minoritarian policy desires through the courts. And uh, I will—I would like to amend my testimony slightly to say that if there's a Republican who does beat Trump, it will only be because, be because yeah. they're promising to let Trump out of prison. That's the only reason. Right? It'll be based it on pardon. Mitch so, McConnell who got um, overturned without him, that would have never been sacked. Yeah, but it was—you know. But yeah, exactly. Well, the whole Republican experiment, but he's stocked all the courts with all these judges. It's like if you look at all the judge shopping going on, it's Trump and Republican judges all the way down. They've, they've basically built the machine that just gets to be a conveyor belt to overturning everything that they don't like about progressive American policy over the past, you know, 50 to 200 years. And uh, that's what they're, you know, they, they see Trump as the guy who gets things done and says what he means and will do it. Uh, not as a politician, but as a a different kind of leader who doesn't have to play by the same rules. Well, 
For me, I've, I've thought that Donald Trump would uh, be the nominee since the day after the election. Um, but I do see one path, um, and it really goes back to California politics. Jane Harmon, Al Checky, uh, running against each other, uh, famously running ad after ad after ad against each other, raising their negatives sky high. Um, what one political consultant in California called murder, suicide, opening the door for Gray Davis to walk through. So uh, if it's not Trump, I don't think it will be DeSantis, um, but I do think there's some... There's a limited possibility that somebody would like uh, Tim Scott could uh, could walk on through if somebody actually lays a glove on Donald Trump. Uh, that has yet to happen. Um, every time that he does something that we all say, oh, my God, can you believe that uh, his numbers on the Republican side continue to well, at least stay the same? And realistically, the these so it's a, pending it's legal a issues facing the former president don't I, I don't think that's going to be resolved by the time we have our next election. Resolved well, or not resolved. I don't see him. Yeah. Even if he's convicted, I don't see it hurting. But him. I do I think know. that there are some crimes he's facing that could prohibit him from running for president, which would change the landscape. If he's convicted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a big if. Yeah. Right. In the meantime, the persecution yeah. only makes him a bigger star, right? So it's a great fundraising. It's great fundraising to get indicted in, America, in the United States of America. Coming up next. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. We're, we're just about at time, but we end all of these conversations with our musts. We ask each of our guests to say, give us one thing that we must be reading, watching, or listening to. So, um, uh, Gil, why don't you kick us off? I know you're always reading something interesting. What uh, What's on your mind? I think we must be watching how certain elements, uh, mostly on the right and the far right, are making a concerted effort to attack fact checkers and disinformation researchers uh, using the courts. Uh, Stephen Miller's group is suing uh, people who do fact-checking disinformation research and using Jim Jordan's uh, subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government, uh, because I think that this is going to be see something we see more of going after people for debunking falsehoods, uh, because the Republican Party has come to rely so heavily on the spread of propaganda and falsehoods. And I think it seems like a really desperate strategy to um, make it so that there's no one can tell what's real or what's not anymore. And if you've uh, recently, there have been some stories about this, the New York Times and other places. But I think this is a, an interesting development that's going to become a lot more important in the next uh, year or two. Well, we definitely live in a post fact or an alternative fact environment. Um, so that's part of a larger. I, I'm going to go light and say you must watch the third season of Ted Lasso. Absolutely. Well, done and done. Uh, and for me, um, I'm listening to uh, a book, um, uh, post-apocalyptic fiction called uh, Silo. Uh, Silo's on TV. The book is called Wool. Um, it's about um, people who have to build a society after everything comes crashing to an end. It seems um, like fiction, but maybe it's uh, speculative fiction, and it could be coming to a theater near you really soon. So, I highly recommend it. It's a it's a good read. 
All right. With that, um, I uh, um, let's bring the uh, Jerry and Diane Club to a conclusion. I hope you guys will come back and we can do this again. Uh, it was super fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. And uh, for all those who are listening out there, Thanks. I hope you'll subscribe. Thanks. Thanks. So, Caitlin, what did you think? That was a really interesting conversation. I'm from Southern California myself, so I loved getting to hear their takes on all things California politics and the upcoming presidential election, of course. Okay, let's get to our musts. What should people people be watching, listening, or reading right now? My must watch would be Threads. I've been using Twitter forever, but I'm really interested to see how Threads is viewing Twitter a run for its money. I can't believe they already have 100 million subscribers. So that's what I have to watch. I mean, it's crazy. We had um, the former communications director of Twitter on and we talked about the ways that it could potentially be disrupted. I don't think any of us thought that the meta would uh, put this gambit in the uh, in the field where they would have a direct challenge to Twitter. That's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I mentioned uh, Silo and Wool in the conversation with, with Gil and Alexis, but I have one more. It's a show called Mrs. Davis on Peacock. Um, it's about um, how AI is coming to dominate our lives and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's kind of a campy and fascinating show. And to me, it's one of the best things I've seen on um, on one of the streamers in a long time. So. Hope you will watch it. Yeah, I'll have to listen in. All right. And finally, uh, for those of you still listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button. Uh, thanks so much.